was going to happen. We were in Jerusalem. We had a group of close to 100 people. Everyone was doing fine, but Miss Olga. We lost her somewhere in the streets of Jerusalem. We had no idea what was going on. But to be honest with you, we were okay because we thought that Marine is going to be steady and solid. You know what she did? Uh, She thought so calmly and wonderfully. She took some pictures of where she was, texted it to her friend who was in our group, and her friend showed it to the guides. The guide said, I know exactly where she is. Tell her to stay put. And we went and rescued the Marine Corps. Because we all know the Marines need adult supervision. That's what I think. There we go. Anyway, God bless you all, veterans. Thank you all for, for serving. We don't, take it, we don't take it lightly at all. So, yes, sir. What's that, David? Space Force. What? Seriously? New space cadets? <laughs> What's the Space Force? That's a real thing? Where have I been? That's a military thing in Israel. What did you hear about that, Dave, on Twilight Zone or something? One new thing every day? Well, that's... (laughs) Well, my new thing is never to call on you. I learned that, David. Okay, there you go. Listen, do you want to stand up, stretch, and take a break, or have you had enough? Uh, Yeah, I know, because you're not a very relational group. You don't want to run the risk of having to talk to somebody. Okay, that's good. I just want the Bible. I'm not interested in people. Okay, that's fine. We will do it. Well, God bless you all. Let me encourage you to get tickets to the December 7th Christmas event. It's the one big event our three classes do together, 6 o'clock in the hall. It's a fun event, December 7th. Tickets are $15. If somebody is having difficulty, speak to any one of our class leaders or me. We don't want finances to keep you from coming. We want to get together. So that's on December 7th. Don't forget about that. Okay, great. And as Pam so well pointed out, this is the only place where you can get tickets right here. You can get it from Pam or any of the class leaders. Just tap them on the shoulder, say, I need so many tickets, and we'll have a good time together. All right, we are in... 2 Samuel 10. Now, before we get there, on the table back there is a box, and it says socks. And uh, we have a wonderful couple here, David and Nadia Wilson. Some of you know them. And they go monthly to minister to homeless folk in the name of the Lord Jesus in downtown Houston. And they determined that a real helpful thing to give the homeless in our city would be warm socks for winter. It's getting cold out there. They need socks, particularly for adult males, new socks. And so we want to give you a week to think about it. And as the Lord leads, buy some, bring them in, and put them in that box on the table next week. We will get them to the Wilsons. Now, we cannot all do their ministry. You may not feel called to that ministry, no problem. But how hard is it to get some socks? so that they can distribute food and clothing to the homeless. You say, well, the homeless are out there because of boom, boom, boom. That's not our job, to judge people. Our job is to go as ambassadors of the God of all mercy. Where would you and I be but for his grace? So we don't go to judge people. We go to meet needs in the name of the Lord Jesus. These are physical needs, but it opens the door to speak to them about their spiritual needs. So socks in the box next week. Okay, there you go. 2 Samuel chapter 10, here we are. It happened 
afterwards that the king of the Ammonites. So I want to show you if I can get this going. Mikey, something's wrong, baby. Unless I push the wrong button, give us a, a chance. Tell me, what you say? Oh, it's likely. Tell me if I'm do if I should push something. Oh man, Mike, way to go! A little slow, but better late than never. Listen, we're going to be a little map intensive today because I want to show you some stuff. We mentioned the Ammonites. Where are they? It was a kingdom. And I want to just give you a little bit of a frame of reference. So let me just start down around here. This is Egypt right around here. And if you go up on the left side of your, excuse my back. If you go up on the left side of the back, see this red strip? Who knows what that's called today? Yeah, that's Gaza. The Philistine kingdom was there, and now it's Gaza. And if you go up a little further on the coast, there's Jaffa. And if you go towards the middle and down, see where Jerusalem is? Give you an idea. And you see three bodies of water. See that little one all the way on the top of your map, Lake Hula? If you dip down, that's the Sea of Galilee. Wider at the top, narrow at the bottom. Looks like a harp. And that's why you read uh, in the Old Testament that it's called the Sea of Kinneret. Kinneret is a Hebrew word meaning harp. So that's the Sea of Galilee. You dip down all the way. See this longer body of water? Does anyone know what that's called? That's the Dead Sea. There's a thin line all the way from the top, and it pours out into the Dead Sea. That's the Jordan River. It's a natural geographic dividing point between Israel to the left and other countries to the right. For instance, all the way up there is Syria. Can you see where it says Damascus? That is the ancient capital of Syria and remains its capital even today. If you dip down a little further to the south, this big area here, I don't know what color that is, gold, that's the kingdom of Ammon. It's in present-day Jordan. That's where the Ammonites are from. See where it says Rabat Ammon? That's the present-day capital of Jordan. That is Ammon Jordan. And if you dip down further south, you get the Moabites over here, and down here are the Edomites. This is all present-day Jordan. Okay, so that's a frame of reference. The Ammonites are from the kingdom of Ammon, which is just east of the Jordan River. And it says, the king of the Ammonites died. We don't know his name until the next verse, but his son was Hanun. Hanun, his son, became king in his father's place. And David said, verse 2, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash. Now we know the name of the deceased Ammonite king. His name is Nahash. Let me tell you a few things about him. He was not a good guy. Nahash imposed himself upon a group of people from Jabesh Gilead. And uh, they knew they couldn't resist him, so they tried to make some deal. He said, I'll make a deal with you. We spoke about this, by the way. Some of us were in Israel, Olga and others of us, just a few days ago. We were in uh, Beit Shan, folks, and we spoke about this incident. Nahash said, I'll make a deal. Here's the deal. Uh, You have to uh, submit yourself to me and also let me gouge out your right eye. That's the deal. 
So I demonstrated in a Roman theater at Beit Shan what I'm going to demonstrate to you right now. Close your right eye just for a second. And while you do it, watch your purses, lady. This, you know, it's some New Yorkers in here. Anyway, you got your right eye closed. Now take your hand and put it over your left eye and tell me what you see. See, that's the deal uh, this guy's making with them. I'll tell you what I mean. If he gouges out their right eye, most would hold their shields in their left hand as a defense. They'd cover their left eye, which means he knew this. They would be absolutely unable to defend themselves in a military conflict. Well, this is not a good deal. Saul, first king of Israel, had his ups and downs, did some good stuff. He said, I'm not going to put up with this. He summons the Israelites to go against Nahash. They win against him. They beat up on his troops pretty much. But this text says, David said, I'll show kindness to Hanum, son of that guy Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. Now, we do not know what kindness it is that Nahash showed David. We do know David had a better relationship with Nahash than Saul did. Now, I'm going to speculate here. I think what brought them together is a common threat posed both of them by Saul. Saul has his ups and downs. We could diagnose him as being bipolar or manic depressive today. When he was down, he wanted to kill David which obligated David to go on the run. I think he might have sought refuge or been provided with it by Nahash. And so David and Nahash came to be friends. To show respect to his memory, therefore, it says David sent some of his servants to console him, Nahash's son Hanum, concerning his father. A head of state, David, a king, sends a diplomatic committee to go to another nation-state, Aram, simply to show respect to their deceased uh, king. That's, that's kind of what's going on at this point. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, by the way, how did they get there? I'll show you. Well, I have to use this map because we've got chairs over there. I'll show you, just to give you an idea. David, remember, is here in Jerusalem. So he went east to Jericho crossed the Jordan River, and went slightly north, northeast, to get over there to Rabat. In order to travel north on the east side of the Jordan River, he was probably on a road that exists today. It's called the King's Highway. It's a real place. I traveled on it, on the Jordanian side, King's Highway. So uh, the delegation of David travels that route, and, and they come to the land of the Ammonites, and the princes of the Ammonites... And those are government officials uh, in the land of Ammon. They say to their king, Hanum, they give him counsel. They say, do you think David is honoring your father because he sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? They impugn David's motives. You know, bad people are always seeing bad stuff in other people's lives. They say he's not. He didn't send these people just to console you with regard to your father's death. They're spies. They're checking out the capital city of Rabbah here. They're going to attack it one day. Hannah makes the mistake of listening. Be careful whose counsel you listen to. Well, he, uh, he listens to them. Here's another map just to show you. I went a little map crazy today. Uh, so just a, a few more things. See down here the province of Idumea? 
That's where Herod came from. It's on the bottom of your map. Just above it is Beersheba. Have you heard the expression from Dan to Beersheba? It's in the Bible. Dan would be the northernmost city in ancient Israel, and Beersheba the southernmost. And then uh, as you go around here to the left side of your map, you see it says Plain of Philistia. Again, you rightly identified that as, as Gaza. And then you go cross over to your map. You have Bethlehem there, and right above it is Jerusalem. And to the right of Jerusalem, Mount of Olives. We were on the Mount of Olives just a few days ago. In fact, it rained and we got wet on the Mount of Olives. And then, see, they crossed over. They're still going to the right side of your map. They go from Jericho, Gilgal, and they're over there in Rabah. That's where all, which is present-day Amman, Jordan. So that's kind of what's, what's going on in the map. Hanun's counselors uh, tell him, don't buy it. You know why? Grace, the grace of the king is something that arouses suspicions. Wonderful writer, a lady, uh, made this quotation. I really like it. It's so accurate. We are suspicious of grace. We're afraid of the very lavishness of the gift. The most difficult thing you and I have as Christians in communicating Christ to unsaved people is that he's the God of all grace. There's nothing to hang that on. God's grace, says, is an in spite of kind of a thing. And there's almost nothing like that in human relationships. Almost every relationship is based on give and take. You give to me, I give to you. You take from me, I take from you. That all makes sense. Grace, however, is counterintuitive. Grace says, in spite of you, I give to you. Now, that's an unusual thing. A grace is a description of God's anyway kind of love. Oh, God, I'm this and I'm that, and I don't do this and I don't do that. And God's, yeah, but I'll have you anyway. I'll forgive you anyway. I will adopt you into my family anyway, anyway. Well, that's very hard to take. And just as people in that day were suspicious of the grace of King David, so too today people are very suspicious of the grace of King Jesus. But folks, if you reject the grace of the king, all that's left is the wrath of the king. That's it. You will see that, well, in the end times, but you'll also see it played out in this text with reference to King David. Verse 4, so Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. Now, this is beyond reason. Look, if Hanum, the king of um, Ammon, decides he didn't want anything to do with David, he can send David's diplomatic corps back home. But you don't mess with another country's diplomats unless you're looking for trouble. I mean, if we have foreign diplomats here in Houston, they can go as fast as they want and park where they want. You can't even give them tickets, let alone shave off their beards and make them half naked. I get the impression Hanum was looking for a fight. You know why that's my impression? He was. He wanted to obligate David to do something. Now, that's a big mistake. It's entirely irrational because at this time, David's army could have beat. Whoops, I've got to be careful how I put it. Could have won an easy victory over uh, Hanum's boys. Why is he doing this? Well, because Satan is provoking him. That's why Satan gets you to do irrational things. By the way, this provocation of Israel exists today. From Gaza, they float incendiary balloons. And they land in fields and agricultural areas and 
burn acreage. It's just to provoke Israel to do something. Israel's army can march into Gaza in two seconds, wipe it out. Wipe it out. The citizenry now in southern Israel are asking the government to do something like that. Now, I can understand that. You're living in the south and your fields are being uh, burned and missiles are fired. And even though they're intercepted, most of them by the Iron Dome, still when they're intercepted, what do you think happens to the shrapnel, the the fragments? They land on the civilian populace. We've been there. People have told us our kids can't sleep at night. They sleep in our beds or under our beds. The alarm goes off all the time. So Israel's population in the south is putting pressure on the government to do something. Go in. Clean it up. Um, I hope it doesn't happen because if it happens, do you realize the international implications of that? The entire Muslim world will rally behind Hamas, the government of Gaza. Not just that. The government, governments of the world will fault Israel once again. If Israel went in with foot soldiers, there would be uh, innocent civilian life lost. Why do I say that? Because Hamas fights dirty. They hide behind human shields. Their um, terrorist organizations and missile arsenal is housed in hospitals and schools and, get this, United Nations buildings. You forgive me here, but the United Nations is a waste of time. They do zippo good in the Middle East. They've allowed their buildings, even in Gaza, to be used to house Hamas missile arsenal. Now, Israel tries a strategic, from the air, surgical attacks. Before they go, they try to target, uh, target bomb factories and so on and so forth. Before they do, they drop leaflets saying, on Tuesday at 3 o'clock, we're bombing that particular building. They give the civilian populace an opportunity to protect themselves. Anyway, that's what they're doing with a measure of success, but insufficient. The same kind of provocation by this nutcase Hanum against an army far stronger than them is taking place today. Eventually, Israel's going to have to do something. Egypt is trying to broker peace uh, with Hamas now and even the rest of the Arab world. It's a wonderful thing. Israel is developing good relations with uh, Saudi Arabia, other countries like that. But the radical, not Palestinian people, I did not say that. The government, Hamas, is going to drive their people to terrible, terrible places. Anyway, that's kind of what's happening. So this guy shaves off half of their beards. Now take a look at these beards. Um, Today, a beard is a good, you know, uh, men look good in most beards. It's kind of a fashion statement more than anything else. But that wasn't the case in those days. Men had beards, uh, beards as a sign of their masculinity and freedom. Because if you won victory over a people and made them your slaves, they were obligated to shave off their beards. Slaves could not have beards, only a free person. Hanum knew what he was doing. I will emasculate you people, and I'll make it look like you're my slaves. And so uh, this is kind of what he does with the bearded uh, diplomats who David sent to express condolences. Now, also, I believe Hannah knew this. What he did in shaving off their beards uh, was a violation of their Torah. Now, when I say Torah, do you know what I'm talking about? 
first five books of the Bible, Law of Moses, Torah, means teaching. And in Torah, here's a passage of scripture, I'll read it to you, but it's on the screen. Leviticus 19, 27, you shall not round off the side growth of your heads nor harm the edges of your beard. That squiggly stuff on the bottom, that's called Hebrew. <laughs> so that verse in, uh, in Torah, in Leviticus, it gives an idea of what God required of, of their beards. Now, Hanum knew this. If he shaved off half of it, it would render them in noncompliance with their own scriptures. So that's a bad deal. By the way, based on that verse, my people, the Orthodox brand of Jews, grow their um, sideburns real long and they curl them up. Maybe you've seen pictures. They're called peyote. We saw a lot of that in Israel. They don't understand the verse at all, but anyway, that's what they do. So he not only rendered their beards in noncompliance, the text says he also cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips. Now, in doing that, he knew what he was doing because there's another passage in Torah, Numbers 15, verses 38 and 39, which says, Speak to the sons of Israel. Tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels or fringes on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It was meant as a reminder for them to keep the commandments of God. So think about this. If he stripped them up to their hips, there go the tassels. And that meant they were in violation of the Torah with regard to their garments as well. He knew what he was doing. It was public humiliation. This is an artist's rendering of what happened. Now you see half of their beards cut off, and you also see if their garments, they wore long garments, if they were cut off to the hip. Now, this is the cleanest uh, depiction I could find. You can see what's showing. I, I searched, I tried to find something that would not uh, uh, offend the sensibilities of the class. But, man, I saw some slides. I'm probably not going to eat lunch today because <laughs> things were exposed. Their private parts were exposed. And you know what they looked like from behind. You understand what I'm talking about? By behind, I, no pun intended. But anyway, it was a very cheeky thing to do. And <laughs> that's what they did, public humiliation. You know, I'm going to tell you something. Oftentimes, the ambassadors of the king, they really get mistreated. That's the way it is. But you need to know, when the ambassadors of a king are mistreated, it, it shows disrespect to the king, doesn't it? What happened to King David's ambassadors was a reflection on him. What happens to the ambassadors of King Jesus is a reflection on him. When you're put upon by folks who don't like your Christianity, do not take it personally. It has nothing to do with you. Listen, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, says King Jesus, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's our connection to the king that brings upon us sometimes degrading, humiliating uh, things like what happened to King David's ambassadors. Don't worry, King Jesus takes it seriously when people mess with his kids. Now, verse 5, when they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. This is a good leader. He could have first taken the army and uh, sought revenge against Hanum and his boys. But no, he said, first, I'm going to go and minister to my people. That's a good king. 
And so he meets them at Jericho. <clears throat> Why? When they returned from Mabah, Jericho would have been the first city they would have come to before going to Jerusalem. We traveled on the Jericho up to Jerusalem road, the same one they would have in that day. It exists today. It's the same road. So they stayed. David said, hang out at Jericho. Now, it wouldn't take long to restore their clothing, but it takes time for your beard to grow back. And to spare them the humiliation of having to go back to Jerusalem among family and friends looking like this, a very sympathetic king said, you can stay at Jericho until it's, your beard grows back and you go back to Jerusalem. So that's what he does. Now, we were in Jericho just a few days ago. Jericho, do you know, is the oldest city on earth, 10,000 years old. I haven't been to Jericho in 10 years. Why? why? Well, uh, Jericho is uh, uh, politically not part of Israel. Isn't this weird? Why? Because the Israeli government gave it up to the PA, that's short for the Palestinian Authority, under the guise of what's called land for peace. Uh, under international pressure, Israel gave up lots, including Jericho, thinking it will affect peace. That has not happened. Israel gave up Gaza, no peace from Gaza, Bethlehem, and Jericho. Anyway, because there are at this point more peaceful relations going on with the Palestinian Authority in Jericho, we were able to go. Uh, that was the first time in, uh, in, in frankly, years uh, that, that I've been able to go. And we go there for a few reasons. There are Palestinian Muslim people who live there and what a good way to build bridges. So we went to a store. It's my second time there. The store means nothing to me. In fact, my head spins when you go into these stores. There are all these things on the shelves. You know, I don't know what to choose. I just like to sit on a bench and let my wife engage in her sport, which is shopping. And so, but we go, and the second time I could already see the Palestinian Muslim, Mr. Hanafi, we met him, welcomed us. In fact, he pulled me aside and he said, you see that man there who was pointing to one of our guides, Isaac? He said, he is a Jew. I'm a Palestinian Arab. We are like brothers. So what the United Nations cannot do is happening on smaller, unreported scales. Anyway, we were in this place, Jericho, where David had his men hang out. Now, verse 6, when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, and boy, you don't have to be a rocket scientists to know that's going to happen you treat the diplomatic delegation of a king this way you know you better be ready for his response when they realized they become odious to david they knew they can't deal with david's troops david was a military hero here's what they did the sons of ammon sent and hired the arameans of four places here they are beth rehab and <coughs> the arameans of zobah 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Ma'akah with a thousand men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. So look into the map once again, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. The kingdom of Aram, or the Arameans, would be, see where the Sea of Galilee is? Go to the right and up. They would be all the way to the right of the Sea of Galilee, off the map, and all the way up. See where it says Syria? They'd be in Syria and north. And so um, the, the Ammonites decided, man, we got to team up with some professional soldiers. So the Arameans, they were mercenaries. You hire them. They're professional hired guns. They'll fight in any battle. And so the uh, Ammonites thought, well, 
together we can nail David. So that's kind of what's going on. So when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. So uh, David's forces under Joab, they crossed the Jordan. Here's how they did it. It had to be this way. They went from Jerusalem once again, and they went to the right and up a little bit to Jericho. Then they crossed over, and they made their way to Rabat, the capital. That's kind of the way they did it. David heard about this, and he summons his troops, and they're going to go and retaliate and make war. And so it says in verse 8, the sons of Ammon came out, drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city. So here's what they did. They decided we'll stay near our city, Rabbah. Why? If the battle goes against us, we can seek refuge in our city because it was a walled city. It had gates. Gates in that day were more than just entrances and exit places. Gates were fortified towers, broad gates. We saw some of them when we were at Megiddo on this last trip and in other places. And so the Ammonites basically had plan B. If it goes against us, we're close to our city gates. We can get in there, lock the door, and we could defend ourselves against David's troops. So they positioned themselves near their city while the Arameans, the paid mercenaries, not in such a good spot, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Ma'akah, they were by themselves in the field. So one group uh, near the city, other group out there in the field. Well, it's all right. These are professional soldiers, and they can kind of handle it. Now, what's happening here is Joab, quite a good military general, um, he didn't know. The Arameans got them before them. And so the Israelites are about to be sandwiched in two forces, front and back. So it says in verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he's in trouble. This is the worst situation for an army to be in. Pincer movement. Uh, I mean, you got your enemy in the front. You got your enemy. You're being sandwiched in between. You're, you're just in bad trouble. But this is a good, cool-headed general. You want a general like this. And he knows, frankly, the odds are against him, but you got to do something. So here's what he does. He selected from all the choice men of Israel. What does that mean? Well, you had your ground troop. You got your soldiers. But he, he got basically the special forces. He got Green Beret. He got SEALs. He got, okay, Olga. He got the Marines. I'll give you some credit. Uh, he selected his uh, finest troops, uh, and he is going to lead them, it says, against the Arameans. This is a good general. He's not taking the easy way out. He said, I will take these elite troops. We will go against the Arameans. Remember, these are hired guns, professional soldiers. Uh, They are tough. They are sharp. And not only that, they had chariots. Now, you've got infantry, and they got artillery and chariots. You're in trouble, Joab says. Uh, I'm not taking the easy way out. I'm going to do this. And then he says, verse, it says, verse 10, but the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. Joab going against the Arameans out in the field. Abishai, his brother, 
is going to go against the Ammonites stationed near their city. This is an amazing thing. And so it says in verse 11, he said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, I'll come and help you. What a model for God's people. Think about it. Joab is facing the enemy this way. Abishai's brother is facing the enemy this way. They got each other's back. That's what God's people should be doing in a local church. We do not have to agree about everything. We don't have to like everything about one another. But, folks, the enemy is not in here. It's, he's out there. We must not turn against one another. When that happens, we rob God of glory. We disgrace the church of Jesus Christ. We lose our testimony value. Listen, give up the fight against a brother or sister in this church. That's not the fight. You don't have to like that person. You don't have to go out for dinner. That's okay. There's no commandment that says thou shalt like one another. But we have to fight together. You understand? It's spiritual warfare. We have to be together. So uh, Christians should have each other's back, but sometimes we stab each other in the back. Not permissible. You can forget about great commission success when that's happening. So I love this battle strategy here. They had each other's back. Now, verse 12, a good general gives a charge to his troops before the battle. It's like a football coach in the locker room before the players take the field. You have to inspire them. And uh, when I was uh, in the service, uh, part of my role as a chaplain was to do something similar. The commander would ask me to do this. And soldiers would want to know, is this a good engagement is God's hand in it this is a just war you have to give them some reason for doing what they're doing and look what Joab does here he says be strong let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people you know what he's saying guys gals this is not just about you what about your families if we don't defeat this enemy you put your wives and children and everybody else at risk it's not just about yourself there's a lot hinges on this secondly uh, we do this for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. Joab had a clear notion that the land of Israel was God's land and that he bequeathed it to the Israelites. They were fighting uh, God's war on his behalf to preserve the integrity of the land bequeathed to them. And then he says this unusual thing, this last statement before the battle, and may the Lord do what is good. In his sight. That's remarkable. Here's a general, seasoned veteran. <sighs> Odds are against him. He works out a battle strategy. He pumps up his troops. He fulfills his human responsibility. And when he has done everything he could do, in trust, he says, Oh God, let the outcome be as you reckon it to be, good in your sight. He would like victory. What commander wouldn't? But he allows for the fact that God has a better idea. I learned a lot here. Some people think it's faith when you demand of God a certain outcome. Oh, God, I claim my healing. As, you have, as if you have authority to claim anything, obligate God to do anything. That looks like faith. It is not faith at all. You think you're twisting God's arm. This is faith. Oh, God. I got a cancer diagnosis. That's Lori right there. See, Lori, she's a doll. We got to pray for Lori. 
That's Lori. She's a sweetie. And uh, she got a cancer diagnosis, just like Maureen Schneider. She starts chemo Friday. We must pray for that kid. Lori should be praying. We should be praying for her. Oh, God, heal me of this cancer. Who in their right mind wouldn't pray that way? But then we must add part B. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, what could possibly be better than total, Lori, total and complete healing? Man, a million things as God reckons it. Not me, not you. But God is eternal. He's not bound by this life. Spate is the only life we know. God allows things to come his kids' way always for good, to enhance our dependence on him, for him to show us his hand, etc., etc. He's always up. You know what Job essentially said? God, I don't understand you. I cannot figure this out, but I believe you're sovereign and you're good. I think I know what, what's good for me, but I think you could veto it because you have a better idea. I know what I want. You know what I need. What a prayer of faith. May the Lord do what is good in his sight. Didn't the Lord Jesus do the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, let this cup pass from me. Why wouldn't he pray that? It was the cup of crucifixion. Let it pass from me. But then this, nonetheless, not my will, thy will be done. Now, that's the model of faith and prayer. Joab questioned the circumstances, but not the character of God, who's in control of the circumstances. Here's the two questions always to ask, no matter what your situation is. But is God good, and is God sovereign? Those are the two questions. Don't try to figure out, why am I going through this? Who has answers? Don't listen to people who try to supply them. The real thing you got to wrestle with is, but God, are you still good and are you still sovereign? Now, for me, um, I, I make recourse to the crucifixion because I figure if God didn't spare his own son for a, a person like me, how will he not also with him freely give me all things? Not that I want, but that I need. So it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he gave me the greatest, his only begotten son, though I surely didn't deserve that, how will he not do what's good by me? And I do not question the sovereignty of God. He spoke the very cosmos world into existence in the power of his word. Big questions. But, oh, God, this has happened to me. It took me by surprise. But are you still sovereign and are you still good? You've got to come up with the right answer for those two. And then you can pray just like this guy did. Oh, God, therefore, do what is good in your sight. Don't be afraid to say, oh, God, this is the outcome I'd like. Nonetheless, do what's good in your sight. All right, so verse 13. Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans. They fled before him. Didn't even have to fight. Now, when the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled... They also fled before Abishai and entered the city. See, they went into their city to take refuge. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came back to Jerusalem, <clears throat> realizing that their hopes of a decisive victory against the Israelites were dashed on that day. The Ammonites entered into the protective environment of their fortress city, and for whatever reason, Joab didn't pursue the attack, went back to Jerusalem. Verse 15, when the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. Now, this is interesting. The Ammonites gave up the fight. The Arameans said, let's give it a second try. 
They were humiliated by Israel, and in pride they form again. Verse 16, and Hadadezer sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. That is the Euphrates River. What, what modern-day country is the Euphrates River in? Iraq. Think how far east they went to recruit other Arameans from to join them in the battle. And they came to Helam, and Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. They bolster up their numbers with other Aramean brethren from as far east as the Euphrates. Verse 17, when it was told David, he had spies, espionage. By the way, Israel will be attacked. It's a given. Hezbollah is building up its missile uh, arsenal. Uh, Hamas is being supplied by Iran. There's a Russian presence in Syria on the Golan Heights. It's just a matter of time. Israel will be attacked by multiple nations. However, it will not be a surprise attack. It was in 1973, the Yom Kippur War. That won't happen again. Our people were quite amazed at the absence of military, visible military presence when we were in Israel. Oh, but they're there. Eyes in the sky. Very sophisticated. Uh, cameras, radar, and all the rest. They can look into the home of a Syrian and see what he's eating for breakfast. They'll be attacked, Israel will, but it won't be a surprise attack anymore. David, too, had his espionage folks in advance, and so he knew that the uh, Arameans are coming at him again. So when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together, and they crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. So just to give you an idea where we think Helam is, whoops, that has nothing to do with it. Hang on one second. Nor does that. But that does. Uh, so um, here's what they did. He's in Jerusalem. Remember, that's his capital. By the way, when we were in Jerusalem, we had a chance to drive by the United States Embassy, which has been moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, that makes sense to me. Any sovereign nation has the right to determine where to put its embassy. Don't you th establish its capital except Israel? Isn't that weird? What if somebody said to us as Americans, we don't like you calling Washington, D.C. your capital. Move it to Clute. <laughs> what would we do? Well, how do the nations of the world get to tell Israel where to put its capital? Now, this is not a political statement. It's biblical. Jerusalem has been Israel's capital for 3,000 doggone years. The United States simply recognized it as such. By the way, I think God will bless us for it. That is a biblical thing to do. Anyway, David went from Jerusalem. Look what he did. He went up slightly north, crossed the Jordan River, went to the right, went east, and went up to that place, Helam. It's about 40 miles east of the Jordan River. It's in a desert area. That's where the Aramean troops are gathering together, and that's where David goes to fight them. So uh, it says the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him in verse 18. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobak, the commander of the army, and he died there. This was a significant win. I'll tell you why. It gave David control of an expanded land. In fact, David was able to uh, increase his land holdings in accordance with what God said is 
the con- are the confines of the promised land in Genesis 15, verse 18. Let me read it to you. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Folks, you see that red line? That's the promised land. And Israel in its history has never possessed the full extent of the promised land. In fact, I wanted to show you where Israel is today. (laughs) Get on your glasses because all it is is this. See this tiny sliver of land? That's Israel today. That's all there is to it. In fact, you see where it says Israel out there in the water? Mediterranean Sea? They can't even label Israel. There's not enough room to put those letters. It's just a dinky little thing. Why is Israel confined to this land area when, according to Genesis 15, 18, many other places, these are the confines of the land? Well, I'll tell you why. Disobedience. So what does this mean? God gave an unconditional land promise to Israel. It's theirs. They cannot forfeit it. However, their enjoyment of the land is very much conditioned on their obedience. Here's the parallel with us. God gave us an unconditional new covenant promise of our promised land, heaven. It's unconditional. You cannot forfeit it, but you can sure lose the joy of your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. It's unconditional, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. It's contingent on obedience, as with Israel, so with us. Which is why when people say, because of the disobedience of Israel, they have forfeited their right to the land, Man, they're committing suicide. Turn it on you. Because then you got to say, because of my disobedience, I may forfeit my inclusion in my promised land, which is heaven. You've got to see what's an unconditional covenant and what's a conditional covenant. The land is, is not contingent on anything. Enjoyment of the land is contingent on Israel's obedience. Has Israel ever enjoyed unobstructed uh, possession of the land in its history? No. Not even now. Those are the confines of Israel's promised land. Will Israel ever possess land uh, up until the red line? Yeah, they will when the king of Israel returns. Not until that happens. Now, I want to show you something. You don't have to buy this. Can you see that uh, the red line, uh, squiggly red line from the top over here to the right? Uh, um, Euphrates River is running through Iraq. I think what we have sent our, our troops to Iraq, and American blood has been spilt there. This is just my thinking. You don't have to buy it. If my people, Jews, have been obedient, we would never have had to commit American troops to Iraq because it would not be in Muslim hands. It would be part of Israel, an ally. Because of the disobedience of my people, our young people have gone to Iraq and have died there. The ramifications of sin are really, really great. We can sin, but we can't out we can't out sin the grace of God. His is grace greater than all our sin. We don't lose the land. We don't lose heaven. Good night, however. The road to heaven can sure be bumpy based on our disobedience. What's happening in Israel, it is a bumpy ride. Good night. They are just ready for attack. All 
a high percentage of their budget goes into their military and all the rest. It's, a, it's not a peaceful existence whatsoever. Again, they don't lose the land, but they forfeit enjoyment of the land. So, so the, the red line is actually the, <laughs> the promised land, never been totally possessed by Israel. So based on this little victory that David had, he was able to increase the territory that he previously possessed. Now verse 19, when all the king's servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. By the way, the world is a dangerous neighborhood. If you want to bring rogue nations to the peace table, you have to do it from a position of strength. Which is why I'm glad the present administration I am not making a political statement. I think you should vote for who you want to. I'm just making this statement. I'm happy that the present administration is intent on building up our military strength. It's a shame that so much money goes into it. But the world is a dangerous neighborhood. Rogue states out there are not coming to the peace table because we ask them to. They have to know, don't mess with the USA. We have to show an intent to go in. I don't like it. You don't like it. It is a sin-sick, corrupt world. And while we live in this sin-sick world, I am grateful for law enforcement authorities and I'm grateful for a strong military. You see here, these people made peace with Israel and served them. Well, sure, after Israel beat the snot out of them. That's what you have to do. Israel is a very strong military. If they didn't have it, now they've been overrun a long time ago. And so to the United States of America, we need a strong military. It's a doggone shame that so much money goes to the military and we have to scrimp for socks for poor people in downtown Houston. I understand that. But we live in a sin-sick, corrupt world. And you, you have to lock your door and you have to have police and you have to have a strong military very important. So they make peace with Israel. And look, so the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. <clears throat> they said, we don't want to mess with you. Israel is too strong. So all that happened. Now I want to tell you something. This chapter ends with unfinished business. Here it is. When Israel entered the land, God said, wipe out the Ammonites. Now, if you have a problem with that, then take it up with God. I'm just telling you what he said. He said, wipe out the residents of the land. The Ammonites, Israel did not do it. David should have been about the business of doing it. He doesn't. He lets the Ammonites take refuge in Rabbah. His commanding general returns to Jerusalem. That's unfinished business. Later in 2 Samuel, you'll see David figures out, man, we got to go get them. So he orders his troops to go back to Rabbah and finish the job. And you know what David does while his troops are out there fighting? This is what he does right there. That's what he does. That's David. He stays back at the palace. By the way, we were on this site, the ruins of the palace of David. And David is just sitting there. He's got nothing else to do. It's springtime. While the army is at war, the king is back. You know what he's looking? He's looking across the Kidron Valley. Those mountains are Mount, the Mount of Olives. See those houses? I know somebody who lived there. Her name is Bathsheba. From his elevated position, he could look over at these flat roofs and see this good-looking woman entirely naked bathing. He's got nothing else to do. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's the commander-in-chief 
uh, what does it say, idle hands or the devil's workshop? He orders his subordinates to go fetch Bathsheba, and you know the rest of the story. This chapter ends setting up for us this terrible scene that we're going to see play out in some of the subsequent chapters in 2 Samuel. Folks, what's the moral of the story? You and I got to get busy. That's what the moral of the story is. Not killing people. I didn't say that at all. We got to get busy doing great commission stuff. Find something to do and do it. We don't all have to do the same things. Don't feel guilty because somebody's going downtown Houston and ministering to homeless people. Listen here. If you're not cut out to do that, don't worry about it. Do something else. Find something to do. Why? It's not that God needs us. We need to serve. If we're not in service, we're going to hang out like this, and we're going to watch too much TV stuff that gets us into trouble. We're going to, we're going to not put checks and safeguards on our computer. We got nothing to do. I would just say get busy. Don't wait around to figure out what your spiritual gifts are. Just do something. Get busy. God has given us activity to do here to keep us busy while we wait for his return. Otherwise, we've got nothing to do with just wasting our time. And the enemy can move in and tempt us like crazy. Find places to serve. Sign up for something. And even if you find out after a while it's not you, don't worry about it. Do something. It's better to do something, even if it's not the something you're going to end up doing for a long time. Just do something. Get busy. You know what the worst thing is? A peacetime army. I was in the army. We are useless in times of peace. We train, we train, we train, we train for combat. (laughs) We find things to do. When I was a chaplain, part of my job was, oh, my goodness, Try to find stuff for soldiers to do so they don't just sit around and waste their, their time. Peacetime armies, useless. That could happen to the church of Jesus Christ. Peacetime army. Folks, we've got to get in the battle. It's a spiritual battle. Do something. Don't worry about the person next to you, what that person, where that person went to this missions trip. And that doesn't have to be you. Do something. Find out something to do. There's an area of service for Everybody, we've got to be engaged. My mother was getting elderly. She's deceased now. She was older. She couldn't go to church anymore. And so she didn't know how to work a computer, do all this kind of stuff. So she would buy greeting cards, and she was the greeting card lady for her church. She would just write out for birthdays, this and that. She showed me in her uh, filing system in her apartment. You know, she had it all alphabetized. She knew when everyone's birthday and anniversary was. Man, I could have made it so simple for her to computerize it and Stuff like, but no, my mother couldn't do all that technological stuff. Older woman, she couldn't do that. She was doing something. Do something. It doesn't have to be the same thing someone else is doing. Do something. In the army, the front lines troops, the elite troops, they get a lot of the glory. They couldn't function without beans and bullets and all those other people. I thank God for the medical records people for crying out. I remember one time. I got sent somewhere, and you had to make sure your shot record was up to date. I'm so glad they didn't lose my shot record. If you lose your shot record, you had to get them all done again. Everyone has something to do. One time I was in the military, and a guy, it was was howitzers, big things. They blow up stuff. They make a loud noise. About eight-inch diameter thing, and they blow up stuff. But it's not for everyone. It makes a loud noise. One guy came to me. He was a really good guy. He needed to be reassigned. So I got the commander. I wrote a letter to reassign him to a clerical thing. 
he felt bad about himself. I said, Please do not feel bad. We couldn't, the guys in the field couldn't do what they're doing if you're not doing what you're doing. There's a place for everyone. That guy was as much in the battle as anybody else. Get in the battle. You don't have to be a street preacher. You don't have to go up to total strangers. and You don't have to do any of that kind of stuff someone else is doing. Do something. Go buy some socks and bring them in next week. Socks in the box. Everybody could do that. You understand? I don't want to be like David. Idle hands, the devil's workshop. Lord Jesus, until you come, we got stuff to do. We're privileged. You've given us things to do, gifts with which to do it, personalities, time, resources, the whole deal. I pray everybody here would find a place of ministry, even if it means choosing one at random, instead of sitting around thinking about it too much. Just do something. That's for all of us. There's no t- nobody retires. We can do different things in the ministry, but you don't stop being in the battle until the time of your return. We want to learn from David, man after your own heart. Made a terrible mistake with regard to Bathsheba. We don't want to do the same. Thank you for putting us into service. May it be fruitful, profitable, satisfying for each of us until the time of your return. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll do the next chapter next week.